Welcome to another episode of Draven Gray's Variety Show. Another episode in the series Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. We'll continue with that, plus some music. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this reading, as well as a little bit of commentary. Chapter 2 Concerning Pipeweed. Hmm. They actually did pipeweed back then? There's another astonishing thing about hobbits of old that must be mentioned. An astonishing habit they imbibed or inhaled through pipes of clay or wood the smoke of the burning leaves of herb, which they called pipeweed or leaf, a variety probably of Nicotiniana. A great deal of mystery surrounds the origin of this peculiar custom or art, as the hobbits preferred to call it. All they could be discovered about it in antiquity was put together by Mariadoc Brandybuck, later master of Buckland, and since he and the tobacco of the South Farthing play a part in the history that follows, his remarks in the introduction to his Herblore of the Shire may be quoted. This, he says, is the one art that we can certainly claim to be our own invention. When hobbits first began to smoke is not known. All the legends and family histories take it for granted. For ages, folk in the Shire smoked various herbs, some fouler, some sweeter. But all accounts agree that Tobold Hornblower of Longbottom in the South Farthing first grew the true pipe weed in his gardens in the days of Isengrim the second, about the year 1070 of Shire Reckoning. The best homegrown still comes from that district, especially the varieties now known as Longbottom Leaf, Old Toby, and Southern Star. How old Toby came by the plant is not recorded, for to his dying day he would not tell. He knew much about herbs, but he was not no traveler. It is said that in his youth he went often to breathe, though he certainly never went further from the Shire than that. It, it is thus quite possible that he learned of this plant in Bree, where now, at any rate, it grows well on the south slopes of the hill. The Breer hobbits claim to have been the first actual smokers of the pipeweed. They claim, of course, to have done everything before the people of the Shire, whom they refer to as colonists. But in this case, their claim is, I think, likely to be true. And certainly was from Bree that the art of smoking the genuine weed spread in the recent centuries among dwarves and such other folk, rangers, wizards, or wanderers, as still pass to and from or to and fro through the ancient road meeting. The home and center of the art is thus to be found in the old inn of Bree, the prancing pony. I remember that in the movie. That has been kept by the family of Butterbur from time beyond record. All the same observations that I have made on my many journeys south have convinced me that the weed itself is not 
native to our parts of the world, but came northward from the lower Anduin, Anduin, whither it was, I suspect, originally brought over sea by the men of western, western Sinai. It grows abundantly in Gondor, and there is richer and larger than in the north, where it is never found wild and flourishes only in warm, sheltered places like Longbottom. The men of Gondor call it sweet Galenius and esteem it only for the fragrance of its flowers. From that land, it must have been carried by the greenway during the long centuries between the coming of Elendil and our own days. But even the duodenum, Dunedine of Gondor allow us this credit. Hobbits first put it into pipes. Not even the wizards first thought of that before we did, though one wizard that I knew took up the art long ago and became as skillful in it as in all other things that he put his mind to. Hmm. Well, isn't that interesting? Pipeweed. What does that remind you of in our time? That was chapter two. We'll do chapter three the next episode. But in the meantime, sit back and enjoy some music, and then I'll add another story.
So that was a track called Story Filled with Happiness. So we're going to go to another reading, but a different genre this time. Last time we talked, we did a sort of a darker genre. But this day, we're going to do a different drama. So it's a book called Fractured Tide. It's written by Leslie Lutz. You can find this on Amazon.com, as you can with most books. So I'm going to read a little bit of this. Uh, it's a really good book, actually. Um, really enjoyed reading it. Um, so let's go along with it. All right. Hi, Dad. I'm going to write you until this pencil wears out, until all of me wears out. I'm not sure what's real and what's not anymore, but these words, they feel real, solid. And there's a chance my letter to you will wash up on the right shore. The wreck, the one that started all this, lies a hundred feet under the Atlantic, close to Key Largo. So, if you guys know Florida, this is where this is. Ten miles offshore, you'll find a place where the water turns blue, black, and the salt sprays tastes different, coppery. And you'll find you'll feel it as soon as your boat passes over the spot. Something wrong beneath your skin, as if the blood moving through your heart has gone sour, like old milk. If you feel all that, you keep going. Get to the shore. Promise me, the whole point of writing any of this down is to save you. The last day we saw each other, I lied and said the charter was canceled because of high seas. Mom never canceled it. She needed the money. The new captain said it was okay, and we had ten divers with full pockets who wanted to see pretty fish and, well, you know how it is. The weather didn't look bad while we were still docked, especially with the wall of hotels and condos that circled the marina like a giant overpriced windbreak. But once Captain Phil got us out past the haystacks, the gusts picked up, and we knew we were in trouble. The ocean started up that trick that makes you think your boat's made of balsa wood and Elmer's glue, not tough fiberglass and metal. But you know me, I never get sick. I didn't even when I was little, and you took me fishing on Black Flag Days. The tourists spent most of the ride hurling, watching the sea, not the horizon like I told them. The week before, Phil went out by himself and found the wreck and marked the place with a boy. When I spotted it, small and white and bobbing about a hundred yards off the bow, the shiver hit me for the first time. That feeling you get when someone walks over the spot your tombstone will go one day. I thought about the waters, the water, and how there was just too much of it, too deep, too dark, too cold below the first thermocline. Not a good day to dive. Phil got up and um, ambled over to me, which is the only way to describe the way Mom's new captain walked, like his pilot's chair was his horse, and he was just heading into the saloon. He scratched his salt and pepper stubble and ran a sweaty hand over his shirt, a lavender stone-washed wife beater that made him look like a total dirtbag. Your mama tells me your job is babysitting the green ones, he said. Someone's got to make sure none of the divers fall over and get a concussion. Someone's got to make sure none of the divers as well. 
Phil eyed me in a way you'd hate. I zipped up my wetsuit the rest of the way, wishing I had chosen the one piece that morning instead of the bikini. Phil tipped his head toward the starboard side of the last chance, a diver. His wetsuit, new and top of the line, had his head over the side like he was slowly melting into the Atlantic. A $500 mask, also new, sat in a pool of seawater at his feet. Phil's face broke into a smile. Good luck with that one, girly. Like, you've never been seasick. Happens to everyone eventually. Mom passed by and nudged me with an elbow. Seriously, Tasha, get the customer in the water. Should I hook a bucket to his waist or just strap it to his head to puke into it? Divers who don't dive are bad for business. I knew what she really meant. No more bad online reviews about a terrible experience at Blue Dolphin Scuba Charters. The one time I posted a reply telling their whiner we have no control over the wind and waves and the hair trigger gag reflex, business tanked for a week and I got grounded. Mom pointed at the seasick diver who was now stumbling toward the head and then pointed at the water before putting on her mask. She sat on the edge and rolled off backward into the waves, disappearing under the surface like a stone. I waited for her to resurface and give the signal, a fist on the top of her head, to tell us she was okay. There was always a little girl in me who thinks when mom is gone, even for a split second, she's not coming back. Too deep, too dark, too cold. Get out and go home. Our craft bobbed and rolled in the waves like a toy in a bathtub. I stumbled over to the diver who hadn't made made it halfway to the head before throwing his upper body over the side again. The horizon, Mr. Marshall, I squeezed his shoulder. Keep your eyes there, above the waterline. He tipped his chin up to stare into the distance, his expression the dictionary definition of miserable. The waves crested white froth that the wind pulled off in ribbons. Then the writhing blue-gray expanse sighed and flattened bit by bit before the whole show started up again. Beautiful to me, to you, not to Mr. Marshall. More crests swell and foam sliding over the surface. It was chaos from there to the coast, and he was again watching the sea. The moon was still out, hovering a handbreadth above the place where blue sky and gray sea met. I pointed at it. Fix your eyes on the moon, Mr. Marshall. She'll stay still. He shook his head, fisting his mouth. Sia, I don't think I can do it. Go on without me, he said through his knuckles. Don't want to hold anyone up. Behind me, another diver splashed into the water. That shiver was still with me, and I fought the urge to tell him he was right to stay up here on the last chance that I would join him for a topside vomit party. We would watch the moon disappear into the day together. Instead, I hooked an arm around his neck and walked him over to the bench and his expensive fins. Once you get in, you're golden. Boats no good in these waves. Nausea will disappear once you're off the roller coaster. A touch of hope shone through the green parlor and his embarrassment. Really? Like flipping a switch, I hooked the tank to his uh, to this to his BC, which he kept calling a buoyancy control device, like he was a walking textbook of proper diving terms. 
I didn't bother correcting him like the rest of his equipment. The BC was uber expensive. The kind that's made of ballistic nylon and has pockets for everything. I pulsed a healthy shot of air inside. The last thing we needed was this guy to get into the water and sink like a stone and held it open for him like a valet with a smoking jacket. Come on, if I'm wrong, you can get out and lie on the floor for the next hour. The poor guy listened to me. And I'm not sure I'll ever be able to forgive him, or forgive myself, actually. He fit the regulator into his mouth, took a deep breath, and gave me a weak thumbs up. The other divers were in the drink, only their heads and the bloating tops, bloated tops of their inflated BCs, visible as they bobbed in the waves, all watching to see what he would do. The neon pink mask girl waved him in, and the diver with the navy stripe on his arms gave him an encouraging okay sign. They'd only met him that morning, a guy arriving solo on the docks with a big shiny bag of gear and a 7 a.m. smile, but he was already one of us. And I remembered something you said to me once. The sea brings us closer, all of us tiny and vulnerable and out of place in a big wet world, poised at the top of the ocean, ready to drop, and we suddenly realize how much we need each other. One giant stride and he was in. I gave Phil a mock salute and followed Mr. Marshall. The warning in my gut was nothing but a murmur, one I could barely hear over the wind. I finned my way over to the boy that marked the drop line and grabbed it. It felt solid, comforting. As I purged the air out of my BC and began to drop, I thought about you, Dad, behind bars, what you were doing at that moment. And I felt you there, bobbing beside me in the waves, giving me advice like you did the first day you drove with me, and I was afraid. We're all in this together, you told me. We don't leave anyone behind. I had done this kind of dive hundreds of times on dozens of wrecks, but the decent descent felt strange this time, alien, and I was the alien, slowly floating through the atmosphere of a new planet, pulled by a gravity to a place I didn't belong. Brave new world, baby, I told myself. Brave new world. You may not belong, but you're going there anyway. It took ten minutes to drop eighty feet and reach the wreck. Halfway down, we hit a swift current. I spent a solid minute pulled sideways like a flag on a pole, moving hand over hand down the line. Marshall followed like a pro, the yellow stripe along his leg, making him easy to distinguish from the other divers closer to the surface. Once the current eased up and we dropped another 40 feet, the ship appeared within the mist beneath me, 200 feet long and almost turtled, its hull swelling up from the sand. I pegged it as a navy destroyer of some kind. A spar in the bow jutted out of at a 45-degree angle, extending so far it disappeared in the haze, as if the sea was slowly dissolving it. As I drifted down through the chill of a thermocline, the massive wreck grew. The ship looked different than I remembered, like it had rolled over in its sleep and was inching its way to the coast. As the memory floated away with the current, a shiver that had nothing to do with the cold ran down my spine, because I'd never been to this wreck before. I couldn't have a memory of it. No one had been here but Phil, and he'd found the wreck only last week. It wasn't on any of the maps. An old World War II vessel nearly scuttled to make a reef, he told us. 
No blog posts or announcements, and somehow I didn't think about how strange that was. When my depth gauge read 95 feet, I landed a few feet from this ship. Marshall followed, letting himself fall to his knees like a man praying on the moon. A warning pulsed louder in me. I had an urge to grab Marshall's arm and shoot to the surface, claw my way back to the boat with the stranger who, for the next 45 minutes, belonged to me. I ignored the instinct. I know you think I've forgotten all about your famous daddy-daughter listen to your gut lectures. Well, you weren't there, and every year your voice gets softer in my head, and that's not my fault. Marshall gave me an okay sign, more confident than the last time, and a little head bob of his bubbles mingled with with mine. Mom was already on the other side of the wreck with her group, the neon green stripe running the length of her wet suit, bright and cheery against the gray hull. Easy to spot when you're following the leader. A diver with blue fins rounded the top and joined us. Colette, probably Mom's idea of keeping me safe with the new guy, sending someone who'd logged over 300 dives, at least 100 of them in caves and ships, to bring up the rear. I attached my orange line to a sturdy bolt and flipped on my dive light. The three of us slid through a wide gash in the hull, a cloud of bubbles dribbling behind. I unreeled the line, letting it hit the deck so softly the silt barely rose. Pulsed a shot of air into my PC to keep me off the floor. Colette stayed within an arm's reach. Her light, a smooth circle traveling along the ceiling. Marshall followed, shooting his beam over the walls like an excited firefly. Scared, maybe. No one gets through a shipwreck scuba course without having the risks tattooed on their inside of their skulls. The first compartment was small, the size of a bedroom. One wall torn up open to the sunlit world, the space looked locked in twilight. We skirted a metal table lying on its side. Marshall's buoyancy was good, his fins a foot off the floor, his movements controlled and small, his hands working their way up the bright orange line I reeled out. The door to the next compartment hung open, the beginnings of a reddish scale clinging to his hinges. I stopped and pointed. I'm not sure Colette and Marshall understood why. I was watching the beginning of the reef, and if I could speak tour guide style, I would have told them nature has a way of taking back everything. Even an object like this meant to defend and attack and destroy. Mother Nature, she takes it all into herself and makes it into a beautiful game. I unwound more orange line and led them into the silky darkness beyond the door into the galley. Since the ship was tilted, you know, the tables and crates all cooking and cooking gear all had all shifted to one side. I pointed out subjects I pointed out objects in the room to Marshall, a single fork on the floor, a glass jar, a can of peaches. At the time, I didn't think how strange it was that the reef program would scuttle a ship with furniture and food still in it, blow a hole in the hull without taking out all of the bits first. New life, new reefs, like to grow on bones, not guts. Instead of putting two and two together, I focused on the small black bream darting out of my path, leaving a little gray cloud behind it, and led them deeper. The darkness thickened until I imagined it was like hovering in space in some corner of the universe where the stars have all gone out. 
I skimmed that light behind me to check on Marshall, and he sent a cloud of bubbles into the beam, his eyes wide and curious behind his faceplate. As I turned back, my dive light caught the brass glimmer of a plaque, the USS Andrews. I made a mental note to write the name in the dive log, add it to the post-dive fish and history talk when the three of us got back topside. Two more pitch black compartments and I found a small octopus. It was time to get my brand new wreck diver back to the charter just to make sure we had plenty of time for mistakes. But I hadn't seen one of these little guys in years, so I was ridiculously excited. Curled up into the size of a basketball, he'd suffered and stuffed himself in the corner behind a wooden crate. The creatures stilled under my light, then the tentacles unspooled in slow motion. My breath thundered, fading and swelling. No matter how calm I am, the sounds so loud in my head, I was thinking fish for a hundred miles can hear my breath or me breathe. I reached toward the tip of one tentacle. It shied away, trembling. I pushed off from the wall to give it room to escape. When I turned to watch it float toward the doorway, I realized Marshall was gone. Oh, God, I lost him. This was chapter one, or you call it entry one, of the really, really cool book, Fractured Tide by Leslie Lutz. Again, it's on Amazon.com. So I'm going to add some more music, and then I'm going to give some, uh, those of you that may be interested in writing, some thoughts on what you might do to start if you plan on writing a book. All right, here we go.
that was the track Electric Clubbing, of course, created by Dragon Gray. So, a lot of people um, don't realize the work that's involved when it comes to actually publishing, uh, writing a book and publishing it. I have experience in doing both. I've done that uh, a long time ago, but uh, I have written books and I've had books as well as um, comics published. But I think that the mistake that people make, particularly for self-publishing, is that they think it's going to be really pretty fast and easy, not really, well, maybe not uh, aware of the cost of investment to get it done. But let me say, let me start off this way. It's very important to, before you consider uh, writing and publishing, getting a public book self-published, you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose, what is your goal um, of writing? Uh, what do you want to accomplish uh, with self-publishing? Um, I would imagine that most people, you know, of course, want to be not just famous, but make some money doing it. And there's a lot of variables that are involved in that. But I'm not going to speak to that as much. I'm going to speak more about just getting started. So the, the most important thing about writing and self-publishing eventually is to start writing your ideas down. Um, you know, uh, an outline is the best way to get started. When I say an outline, first of all, you want to write a premise, which is 25 words or less about your book, a short, very short sort of informational paragraph of what the story is about. And then you might want to come up with, you know, characters and development of characters, who they are. There's a number of things that you might want to do before you even consider publishing and even before you actually write. But a, an outline is one of the best ways to kind of guide the story and guide the process um, before you really get into it. Because then you know what you're going to do. You have direction versus just going sort of nilly-willy. So the first thing I would do is work on a premise. What is your story about? You know, what genre it is? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Those are questions that you may want to ask yourself as well before you even start the actual premise. But remember, an outline is the best way to get started because it's going to, like I said before, keep you focused and clear as to where you're going with it. So the first thing I would do is that. And then next time, the next uh, podcast, I'll talk more about, okay, um, the premise, what might some things be written in the premise. And then, of course, you want to look at the characters and you've got, you know, your main characters, your sub characters, you know, the personality of the characters, whether they're good, bad, you know, all that, the type of genre that's going to be fiction versus nonfiction. So those kind of questions we can you can ask yourself as you prepare to do that. But again, I'm emphasizing a third time, an outline is going to help you the most if you plan on uh, writing a book, not even looking at the publishing aspect, but just writing, because you got to do that before you look, you know, before you look further. You can't have the cart before the horse. So, all right, one more song, and then we'll end this this episode. It's been a long episode, but I hope you've enjoyed the reading. So sit back and relax. Last song. This track is sounded good, baby. So sit back, relax, enjoy, stay safe. See you next time.